Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. We have amazing offers available across the 211, Renault and Dacia range. Get your car delivered to you in just a couple of clicks. Call us today to find out more or visit blackstonemotors.ie. Stay safe from Blackstone Motors. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Late Lunch this Thursday afternoon. Great to have you with us on the show. Lots uh, to talk about over the next couple of hours. If you'd like to join in the conversation, don't forget the usual numbers. 086-1800-658. That's my WhatsApp or text number for the next couple of hours. Or 1857-15958. If you'd like to call in... The song and chat about, uh, yes, Petula Clark, my artist of the week, continues after three. Clodagh McKevitt is worried uh, about the abandoned village in Carlingford. We're going to hear the story. The New Life Baptist Church. Who are they? What are they about? Philip Tharp will be with us on the show after 2.30. We're heading to New York as well today. We'll be joined by Ray O'Hanlon. He works for the Irish Echo over there. He has for years. He's written a brilliant new book about the undocumented Irish in the United States. It's still a big issue and we're going to be talking about it on the show. And we want to hear from you, of course. Just before we uh, meet our first guest today, I want to say uh, thanks to uh, Paddy Feehan, who sent me in a message after the show yesterday. He said, Jerry, I've had a brainwave. I watched a guy cutting grass on a ride-on moor, whizzing back and forth, avoiding all trees and leaving an uncut circle of grass at the base of the uh, trees with intentions to come back later with a trimmer. You're right, Paddy, that's what they generally do. Um, I would like to suggest that they don't come back and cut that grass, but in fact that where there are trees, why not plant some wildflowers at the base of all trees? It would save on the trimming and it would be creating a huge area for bees to forage. Very important. And uh, he went on to say, well done to the residents of College Rise on the Newfound Well Road outside Drogheda who've gone to great lengths. They've planted a whole wildflower area. They dug up, actually, the grass. Well done to them. I like your suggestion, Paddy, and I think it's a good one. It would save on strimming and labour and, at the same time, help the bees. Thanks indeed for sending me in uh, that suggestion after the show. And don't forget, if you do want to get in touch with me, the email address is Lunch at lmfm.ie Now, listen to this. Cannabis is the gravest threat to the mental health of young people in Ireland. It's estimated that 45,000 between 15 and 34 years of age meet the criteria for cannabis dependence. Isn't that shocking? And... 
physicians and psychiatrists are really worried. So we wanted today to get a feel for the situation on the ground. I met this lady on late lunch a couple of years back and I have to say it's one interview that will always, always stay with me. She works with the Red Door in Drogheda. Uh, she has 10 years experience working in the addiction recovery sector. She's the family support counsellor there. She's a counsellor, a psychotherapist and I'm not sure whether she's completed that Masters in Addiction Recovery yet but I'm sure she's going to tell me. Joanne O'Dwyer, welcome back to Late Lunch. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm really good. Have you the Masters done? I, Jerry, I'm actually sitting in Trinity as we speak. I'm on my lunch break and I'm on the last, <laughs> I'm on the last three days of um, adolescence um, substance abuse. That ah. is the topic. This so we actually touched on this report in the last two days. Oh, very we good. Ah, listen, this is really timely then. Well, look, at I wish you well and it's great to hear that the uh, the end is in sight and that you'll be wearing that gown and the hat and all that goes along with that uh, down the road. Anyway, let's talk about this. Look at cannabis. We hear about it all the time. Those figures are frightening. On the ground here in the northeast, is it uh, a pandemic? Jerry, the report is nothing is nothing that we uh, on the front line haven't been seeing for the last ten years. You know the level, of, the the strength of cannabis is, and the potency of it is a lot stronger in in the last ten years because of the the conditions that cannabis is, is grown in now, grown in grow houses, sprayed with chemicals. And uh, grown in very artificial circumstances. Therefore, the potency is like 10 times stronger than it would have been 10 years ago. So we're now seeing young people presenting with mental health issues because of the strength of, of the THC in the cannabis plant. So we're seeing people suffering with paranoia, anxiety, depression, self-harm and suicide. And this is this has been going on. You know, we're seeing an increase of people accessing service with mental health problems definitely in the last five to ten years in Drada. All due to cannabis and accessing this stronger strain of it. How young would you see see people? Well, well, Jerry, in our service in the Red Door, it's 18 over. But, you know, from, from linking with the under 18 services in, in the town, we, you know, people can present as early as 15, you know, 16, when it's starting to become an issue. When they get to us, Jerry, at that stage, you know, when, when families arrive or parents arrive or young people arrive, the, the issues have got, you know, a, lo- a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more troublesome. We'd see young people that would be in debt, would have, you know, and would be using daily and using it. Um, you know, as a coping mechanism, but therefore, then they're starting to see the, you know, the starting to see the real struggles of, you know, um, anxiety, you know, struggling with concentration, you know, um, conflict in the home because of their drug use, you know. So it's it's already starting to impact their 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 quality of life as young as you know, fifteen, sixteen, in dropping out of school, all the stuff that comes with you know early drug use, and the more ch- when you start, the earlier you start, Jerry, the more chance it is that it's going to become an addiction or a dependency later in life, and mm. the research has shown that. You see, I'm like probably a lot of people listening today. You're not really touched by this. I, I'm not taking away from this. There are many families are and individuals there are, and it's increasing all the time. But, you know, I'm an innocent abroad on this because when I think back, maybe I'm completely out of touch. You know, when you were younger, you, you, you dabbled, you took a drink. You know what I mean? Maybe you took a drag of a cigarette, a joint or something like that. Is Are those, and I don't mean to describe them as phases or, or uh, you know, uh, as you set out on the path of life, as you learn about life. A lot of people do in, in terms of these things. But are those steps skipped now going straight to this type of stuff? I know. I think you know what you're saying. There's was a right of passage, and young people do experiment, and that you know, and a lot mm. of not everybody that experiments will end up with an addiction. Yeah. You know, so that that dependency doesn't always happen, but 
um, I, I suppose you know it, it's it's a cannabis thing can also be a gateway into other stuff. So if you're you're getting your cannabis off off a dealer, you you're you know that dealer can then you know when the day comes when cannabis doesn't do it for you anymore, that dealer can supply you with cocaine, can supply you with anything else up the chain from ecstasy to heroin at the very you know what I mean. So yes. th- th- there's other dangers, and I know what you're saying. Oh, it's not you know what I mean. It's it's not, you know, it hasn't come to my door and it's not, but it is something that's going to start coming to more and more people's door because it's more and more readily available and the consequences are, are a lot, lot, so it's a lot more problematic than they have been in the past. Yes, and of course there are consequences besides the person themselves or the direct family in terms of other things and affecting other people in life, that is for sure. You know when you hear, and you've heard this now, you've uh, talked about a decade and the way it's got worse, uh, and you hear the calls for legalisation. How do you feel when you hear those? You see, this, this argument, legalisation or decriminalisation, which is, I suppose, what happened in Portugal and where, you know, if you're caught with, uh, uh, you know, a, a possession of a small bit of cannabis, you know, you weren't punished. You were, you know, linked to a, a service like the Red Door and you were given help. Um, you know, but if you look at it in, in America and Canada, where they legalise, in certain states it's been legalised, you know, it hasn't taken the it hasn't taken it out of the criminal's hands. Like 70% of, of cannabis that, that, that is sold that is is sold in in USA or Canada is is from the black market still. So you know, legalisation of it hasn't taken it out of the criminals the criminals hands. You know, and a lot of people would say, you know, de- you know, decriminalise it and use it the money from the taxpayers to to invest into you know into mental health services, and that's well and good. But you know, research has shown that that's not what happens. You know what I mean? That that the money doesn't end up in the in the government's hands. It still goes into the black market. So, and I think it's a very different argument as well. You know, and, and it always gets caught kind of, you know what I mean, when we talk about what we're really talking about here is young people's mental health being severely affected by a substance. Decriminalisation and, you know, and, uh, you know, legislation is kind of a different thing, but it's always lumped in this conversation yes. when it happens. Mm. So they are they are distinct, as, as you mentioned there. Um, we hear about cannabis grow houses being, you know, raided and uh, shut down and people prosecuted all the time. I take it there's uh, no shortage of supply from within the country here and without. No, no, yes. There's always, only there a while ago in Mead and the, the outskirts of Mead there was a grow house found. So, you know, there there. You know, there's big money to be made in it, and I'm sure you know out in in you know fields and and country and cottages and and farmhouses mm. out blend the rest of the country. It's happening on own coast. So yeah, it's you know it's 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 not even the case of where we used to import it and bring it in from other countries. It's grown in Ireland now, and it's you know and very successfully. Mm. You know, and people are getting very you know entrepreneurial about how they're doing it and and the strength then. And nobody knows the strength then of what they're growing. You know what I mean? Because one, if I get one bag of cannabis this week and I get it next week bag a week next week I know there's a strength could be totally different and it could have a totally different impact on me ne- next week as it does this week and it could be in a totally different headspace and de- different things could be going on for me and I might experience what you know the, the buzz I get from one week to a different also you know the the if we have a predisposed um, mental health issue like with their schizophrenia or bipolar within the family you know, a, a joint or, you know, like a, 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 you know, a session on cannabis can, it's like a light switch. It can just ignite that underlying predisposed condition. So I might be toddling along, having a great time and, you know, maybe there's schizophrenia or bipolar in my family and one day I sit down and have a few joints and all of a sudden then I'm starting to experience, you know what I mean, maybe hallucinations or I'm hearing stuff or I'm starting to, you know, go into psychosis and, you know what I mean? So that's, that's the danger of, of the drug. And I know a lot of people say, it's, oh, it's classy and it's, you know, and it should be legalised. But so what we're trying to get across is 
that you know there are huge implications for young people messing around with a drug that they don't know much about and also the human brain like is it takes 25 to 26 years of age for the brain to totally you know to to form properly mm. and if you start messing around with drugs at the age of 16 17 you're skewing how your brain forms then you're changing the neural pathways you're changing the the the, the formation of the you know of a healthy human brain into something else so yes. Um, you you mentioned there, and the listeners just come on to us about it. There, could you ask Jerry Joanne to explain why heroin is at the top of the pile when it comes to danger? Well, I suppose it's very addictive. Um, the consequences to it are, are huge. Um, you know, it's you know the 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 problems that it causes the individual, the community. I suppose more you know financially. You know, the government, if you look at, you know, how much it keeps someone on methadone and, to, you know, it's one of the drugs that needs, you know, if you're coming off it, that you will need a substitute. You will be physically in withdrawal. It's where if you're coming off cannabis, fairly easy to come off cannabis, fairly easy cocaine. There's no physical withdrawals. So I suppose, in you know, in a lot of ways, you know what I mean, the consequences to the person, to the community, to, you know what I mean, to the family are hugely greater by heroin, and, and and the good thing is, we're not seeing it as as many people getting you know starting off on heroin now. It's, it's kind of if you look at stats, last twenty years, huge reduction amount of people that you know are starting off on heroin. That was a kind of you know what I mean. It's yeah. actually what we're seeing now is people presenting with cannabis and alcohol as their main drug of choice. Okay, so they're the two. Besides, like cannabis and like they're all in the mix here. Uh, you're at the red door there. You are there to pick up the pieces when people become addicted and lives fall apart and all else that goes with it. Is the problem just out of control? In in terms of drugs? In yes, Drada. yes. Well, I suppose, you know, with the feud and with everything that's going on in Drada, I suppose, you know, it's been hugely pumped in the media that, you know what I mean, there's a huge drug problem. You know, it's not it's no worse than anywhere else. You know what I mean? It's no worse than any other big town in, in Ireland. And, you know, um, I suppose we're one of the biggest towns outside of outside of Dublin. So it would make sense that we would have a bigger drug problem than maybe a smaller town like Longford or, you know, or Care or something like that. So, you know, I don't think we're any different than any other town. You know what I mean? Um, I, I, I do think the resources aren't there, I suppose. We don't have the, the resources like you would have in Dublin or any big major city. And that's something that we're, you know, we're banging that drum for years, Jerry, in the Red Door. And I know there was an announcement there last week or a few weeks ago that from the Gearn report that we were going to be given 150,000, you know, to, to support, yeah. you know, to, to pump into the service and stuff. And, you know, there's kind of whispers now that that mightn't be coming fully true and it mightn't happen. So, you know what I mean? Um, it, it, to answer your question, I suppose, Drad is no different than any other town. Mm. We don't have the resources that maybe other big towns have. And that's something that the government and HSE and everybody else needs to to, to address and look yes, at. Yes, and uh, well called for, for there. In, in, in terms of young people as they grow up and they start off in primary school, then they move into their secondary school and hopefully into either work or for their studies and careers. Um, how do you get the message across or can you ever get the message across more widely through education that this is, as you said about cannabis, affecting your brain, affecting your life forever and the other plethora of drugs as well? Yeah, I suppose like any, you know what I mean? As a, as a young person, you want to experiment and you want to, you know, so going into, you know, trying to explain to someone who's young and who's impressionable and who wants to, you know, live their life and, be, you know, have friends and fit in that, the, you know what I mean, the impact on drugs is, you know, and the detriment that it can be to them, you know, it can fall on deaf ears, I suppose. Um, education in school, I suppose, is something that, 
you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of controversy. Does it work? Does it not? You know, can they hear it at that stage? But I think from in the home situation is where you know what I mean. A lot of the work can be done about being a good role model, about looking at your own alcohol use or substance use, being a, a sound of word. Don't be shouting and roaring at your kids if they mess up. That they're, that they're able to come to you if you know if they want to know information. That you're a good source of information to them as well. You know, um, and that you know they've an, an understanding of the damage that drugs do, even from school and from home. The damage that drugs can do to but you know you know yourself as a young person you know somebody banging that drum and you're going oh yeah I just want to have fun so you know uh, to answer your question I suppose uh, you know it's different strokes for different folks and different things work for different people but um, definitely coming from the home is it's where it's start you know good role modeling being good communication um, and you know, and not shouting and roaring at your child if they come in and they go, oh, you know, I, you know, somebody's doing drugs and my listen to them, be there for them, and be have good boundaries. What you will and won't accept, you know, and be be, be there as a as a, you know, as a sounding board for them, and and that they can come to you and talk. And that's that's the thing I'd say to any parent that ever comes to me and they talk about, you know, what do I do? You know, educate yourself, know what the signs and you know what I mean, what to look out for, and you know, be be a source of information to your children. And if they do come to you and they want help, that you're able to have that. Con- open and honest conversation with them and that you don't start screaming around and going oh you know don't be doing drugs or that you're that you're able to able to um, be there for them yeah and that's a real good advice I, I I think about the the ones who are second or third generation uh, homes where drugs are the norm you know what I mean and you've I'm sure you've experienced that in your time that it, that is a real difficulty there there's an interesting question uh, from a listener today could you ask Joanne Jerry please the difference in taking cannabis and CBD products for medicinal purposes and health reasons and what she's talking yeah. about today? Okay, so that's very different. You know, cannabis, the, the CBD in cannabis is the kind of anti-anxiety relaxing property. The THC is the more psychoactive. So it's been, it's been, what has happened is they've taken the CBD from the cannabis plant. So, like people who, you know what I mean, for, for pain relief or for MS or for, you know, fibromyalgia or for, you know, and they're, if they're prescribed it or if they're, you know, vaping it or whatever. Yeah, if that works for you and that, that you're, you know what I mean, that, that's something you want to do. I don't see any harm in that. Do be aware though that sometimes in the CBD oil there's a small bit of THC. So if you were given a urine or you had to be given, you know what I mean, you were being monitored that it can show up and it. We, some of our clients sometimes might jump from smoking weed to home vaping CBD and we go, oh, don't do that because, you know, sometimes it does, co- you know, there's a small bit of THC in it. I don't see anything wrong with it. You know, if if it's if it's if it's a you know an an alternative to medication and to you know to codeine based medication and it works for you, you know everybody it's everybody's entitled to their own to their own opinion and their own. They know their body's best and they know what's right for them. So, you know, but um, I do. I suppose anybody starting off, like just deciding oh, I'm going to start doing you know what I mean, experimenting drugs and starting CBD. I don't know how healthy that is, but. Mm as an alternative to pain relief or coding yes. based or you know what I mean yeah, yeah, yeah. there's no problem with any of that or medicine anybody it works for it has its place but what we're talking right now is the impact that it's having on young people that yeah. are abusing it and yes and the message today is it is certainly far from harmless there are severe implications potentially here and uh, people really need to be aware of what's uh, involved if cannabis has been taken on a regular basis I let you back so you have to have your break there and get back to your studies yeah go on go on and enjoy it you're so good thank you indeed and best wishes with the studies Thanks, Jerry. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. Joanne O'Dwyer there. Brilliant lady from the Red Door in Drogheda. And uh, that girl really has made 
something marvellous of our life because she experienced some of what we were just talking about there a few moments ago. She's a great one. She really is. If you uh, have anything to say, I'd like to comment. Uh, get in touch with us, please. 086-1800-658. WhatsApp or text me to the show. She mentioned Longford there in the, in the conversation. Marquis in Longford. We'll be back in a minute. Stay with us. Now, we were speaking with Joanna Dwyer a few moments ago. And if you were affected by anything we were talking about, the Red Door number, I'll just give you that number for the Red Door, 041-980-4957. That's 041-980-4957, the Red Door. They're fantastic, fantastic people there, I have to say. Oh, wasn't it cold last night, Louise Walsh? Did you feel it in your bones? I always feel the cold. So you do? Extra freezing. This woman be's blue. Two duvets. She be's blue at times. I'm not joking. <laughs> and it's blue in June. when it's Smurf weather it was last night. <laughs> I went out. I stuck my nose out. I was going to go fishing for a couple of hours. But I just said to myself, are you mad in the head? It's too bloody cold. Oh, no. And the frost this morning, the frost on the grass this morning and on the roofs, Good job I put on the little heater in the greenhouse. Me poor tomatoes. You would have heard them crying here <laughs> at this stage. They can't take the cold, the tender plants, so the little heater just keeps them right. But uh, it's unseasonal, isn't it? It really yeah. is, I think. I, I've never remembered it this cold. In May. In May at this time, to be honest with you. And it's staying cold, really, for the rest of the week. Mylan is coming early next week, Hopefully thank God. Hopefully it'll come with a bang. Yeah, and then, you know, that we'll get the mildness that we need. Oh, it's just uh, something else. And we will be talking early next week to Nikki Kyle, our gardening guru. And she'll be advising you, you know, if you get these nights, which you still can get into the middle of May, what to do and more besides. Nikki will be with us early next week on the show. What about the marquee in Longford? <sighs> now... Where will I start or how will I begin? <laughs> well, I'll context it with this. There was Golfgate, remember, as well. You know, Golfgate, look at all the people that attended There's it. There's a court order here to take it down. So was there a time yes. frame given? Well, what gets me about this was it was constructed on council land, number mm. one, and people saw it going up. There was a court order. Why wasn't that court order you know what I mean, enforced. Why did the council officials just leave? And why did the guardie leave and let the party happen? Good God almighty. I'm sitting here scratching my head about this one. I don't understand it. I don't, maybe there are reasons and I'd love to hear them why. But in the name of God, 200 people at a wedding. Those people have no regard for law and order. Absolutely none. They've no regard for other people's health. Nothing. They just don't. It's uh, the Wild West. It's as simple as that. The Wild Midlands, we'll call it, because it's Longford in Ireland. But honest to God, why weren't they just stopped? But if it was council land... Council land. Could the council not take it down without going to the court? I don't know. I honestly don't know. But don't they know. went to court, they got an order and it wasn't acted upon. That's what I scratched I my head I was wondering, is there a time frame? Yeah, like I don't know. I don't know. But uh, look, at who owns the marquee? Who put up the bloody marquee? Seize the thing and keep it and take it from them and throw the book at the rest. They probably don't care, but it's shocking. It really is when uh, so many people are simply doing their very best. Late Lunch LMFM Radio. Valid question from a listener talking about the marquee in Longford. Tell me this, Jerry. How are marquee companies allowed hire them out? That's a very good point. With no gatherings allowed for the last 14 months, that's a really good question and one that should be addressed. How can they hire them out? Where did they get it from? Whose marquee it is? Is it 
I think there's an angle there for sure. Thanks indeed. And more comments besides. I'll come back to them uh, in a wee while on the show. Now, I don't have to remind you that us Irish have been making our way to America since the 16th century. Waves have emigrated to escape poverty, hunger and lack of opportunity, contributing in no small way to the building of their adopted homeland. However, unfettered access to the United States changed fundamentally with the enactment of the Immigration and Nationality Act in 1965. Ray O'Hanlon, who has observed, commented and written extensively on US immigration reform, captures the story brilliantly in his new book. It's called Unintended Consequences. And I'm delighted to say he's joining us from New York. Hello, Ray. Morning, Terry. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for taking our call today. And I just want to mention that you are part and parcel of the Irish Echo team over there. Can I begin by asking you this? How was the act, for listeners listening today, a game changer? Uh, it was, well, first of all, the, the important point is that it wasn't supposed to be a game changer. Um, politicians at the time were reassuring American voters that uh, even though they were going to change dramatically the nature of immigration, in other words, moving it to a mainly family reunification system, they said that the same people from the same part of the world would be coming to America. In other words, Northern and Western Europe, including Ireland. Um, But that didn't turn out to be the case. The world woke up after the 65 Act and said to itself, here's an opportunity, we can go too. Uh, And because Irish immigration was to some extent tailing off at the time and the Irish weren't taking up their their quota. And also, as you know, Irish uh, emigrants from Ireland tended to be single people, not entire families by the 1960s. That was more mid 19th century. Mm. So uh, individual immigrants then uh, wouldn't be bringing over others with them, rather people who are going to bring their entire families. So the Irish kind of got elbowed aside uh, after the 65 Act came into full force in 1968. And basically, Irish uh, visa numbers fell over a cliff. Who drove this? Where was it coming from? Because, look, about the Native Americans, Americans are descendants of immigrants themselves. Do they forget? Uh, no, they, 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 don't, they don't forget. I mean, uh, I think everybody here sort of to some extent remembers or acknowledges at least some of the time their their ancestors and wh- where they came from. The driving force behind, I mean, the, the idea was taking shape anyway in the 1960s. Uh, but President Kennedy, uh, John F. Kennedy, before even being president, was, was writing about this in A Nation of Immigrants. Um, that he was envisaging a new system that he viewed as being fairer um, to more people around the world. And the 65 Act, when you look at it, I mean, it is very much in the spirit of the time, in the spirit of the Voting Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. It's it's hard to find fault with it when you you look at it from a moral perspective. Um, But the, the, the critical thing was that the consequences of that act were very different to what politicians were saying the consequences would be. And the unintended consequences for the Irish um, were absolutely total. You know, I never realised that till I read your book that I, I thought JFK, first Catholic Irish-American president, sure, he'd be batting for us. And oh, my whole uh, take on that was ruined. And thank you for uh, educating us on that in your book, because Kennedy was part of, of the uh, formation of, of this act. But here's the thing. Um, yeah. Do you believe, I wanted to ask you this, having read your book, that the Irish, we should have some form of preferential treatment. 
Uh, no, I wouldn't use the term preferential treatment. I, and just a, a quick word for JFK. Yeah, he, he was batting for the Irish, and and of mm. course after the tragedy of his assassination, yes. uh, his brother Teddy Kennedy, a senator, mm. kind of took up the torch on this bill. You see him on the cover of the book with Bobby Kennedy, and Jackie Kennedy yes. is just off frame to the left. Um, no, I mean they—they they, they were actually Teddy was was considering was offering uh, a little set aside for the Irish in the Act, saying you know we don't want to exclude the Irish, but the Irish government at the time had different ideas. The the Lamas government um, was developing economic plans, and, and this was welcome in Ireland, and wanted to hold on to the young population to sort of match this mm. uh, economic development plan. Um, so it's uh, you know it, it it was a sort of a combination. It wasn't entirely the Kennedy. Yes. And a great many other politicians obviously uh, were involved too. But you talk about preference. Yeah. Um, no, I I don't think the Irish should get anything that's preferential. The Irish just should have a fair shot. Um, you have a situation today. Let's say a young Irishman or woman wakes up in Drogheda, for example, on a Monday morning and says, look, I've done this, this and this. I'd really like to make a go of it in America because I think my skills and whatever. And I have, you know, friends, I, I, I could do something over there even for a while. But simply because they're waking up in a bed in Drogheda on a Monday morning and they're Irish, the chances of them being able to make that leap across the Atlantic is virtually nil under current circumstances. Um, the door is almost entirely shut. If you look at the diversity visa program, which is a lottery, a worldwide lottery, in the last couple of years, the Irish, and I'm talking about Northern Ireland included, 33 visas, you know, 32 visas the year before, literally a handful. You can fit them in a room. Mm. So what you want to saw is, is, is immigration reform here that would at least allow some Irish the chance and you wouldn't have a complete total exclusion that the door is slightly ajar and there is a chance and they, they, they can sort of take their lives to America for a while. Nobody ever wants to see mass forced migration from Ireland ever again. Uh, we don't want that. We don't even want anything like the 1980s. But you want to have at least an element of choice and chance uh, for the Irish. Yeah, and, and that's not a, an unfair call at all. How many undocumented would you reckon are there today? Oh, well, that's, uh, you know, the $64,000 question, and it's not as many as 64000 Um The numbers kind of vary. It's as, some would say as high as 50000 There has been an estimate as low as ten. I, I, I Frankly, at this point, I don't focus really on numbers. Um, I, I, I think rather of people who have lived here for now, in some cases literally decades in the shadows, mm. looking over their shoulders every day wondering if that's the end. And many of these people have families here now, have kids. Um, and I try and think in terms of it really doesn't matter how many. It, it, you know, it, it's rather um, what those that are here face every day. That that tends to concern me most. And even if it's the lowest number, even if it's 10,000, that's a lot of Irish people. Yeah. You know, the Irish population is, isn't so huge that 10,000 is something you could ignore. And I think it is higher than 10,000, but not as high as fifty. Um, and it's very hard to estimate. Mm. Is that a separate issue to the one you spoke about just a couple of moments ago there about allowing somebody uh, living in Ireland here today to go for the first time? Yes. um, uh, Irish immigration reform campaigners here will talk about comprehensive immigration reform that would uh, sort of uh, include uh, a fix for the undocumented Irish here. Mm. But they also talk about future flow. This is a term that they tend to use now. 
as I said, nobody wants the flow to be big or strong or anyway, but you want at least to have the possibility of some flow existing. So they will actually talk about, yes, we need to sort of take care of the undocumented, but at the same time, we also need to have the American door open enough that at least a certain number of Irish people who wanted to you know, take a chance in America uh, that they can actually be able to do that and do that legally. Mm. And those numbers are tiny that you mentioned. I never realised it was actually that small. You mentioned Ted Kennedy there, uh, the Kennedy dynasty, the likes of John McCain you uh, highlight in your book. I, I think of Donnelly, the visa, 18,000, Morrison, 51,000. Those were godsends. Absolutely. I mean, the the story of that time is is, is quite, you know, it was a different time, though. Um, uh, you have very skilled members of Congress working in a Congress that in those days could still do business, that could still sort of have Democrats and Republicans working across the aisle uh, with each other to come up with, you know, real legislation and packages. Uh, imagining a, a Brian Donnelly or a Bruce Morrison or a Howard Berman um, being able to sort of formulate something like that today and getting it through both the House and Senate is, is, is a much, much bigger stretch. You, you have a Congress today that can barely agree on what day of the week it is. Hmm. So uh, although there are there are comprehensive immigration reform bills, again, when you mentioned McCain, uh, McCain and, and, and Teddy Kennedy, the McCain-Kennedy legislation, 2005, 6, 7, that period, and then you had the, what, the so-called Gang of Eight, uh, bill in the Senate in 2013. And here we are in 2021 with uh, a comprehensive reform bill in the Senate and a separate matching one in the House. They seem to come at these sort of intervals in terms of years. But when you think of John McCain and Ted Kennedy, you're talking about two giants um, of the Senate, two giants in American politics. And if they couldn't get comprehensive reform through the Congress, it's very hard to imagine um you know, today, Senator Bob Menendez, the sponsor of the Senate bill, and, and Congresswoman Linda Sanchez in, in the House of Representatives being able to do that. Um, so you might have uh, the proposals now broken up into piecemeal and some parts presented and passed through. Now, it's important to mention that we have Joe Biden in the White House. Mm. And uh, Joe Biden's sympathies, I don't have to tell you, um, he'd probably uh, invite everybody in Louth, for example, <laughs> to tea at the White House if he got a chance. Um, but, uh, you know, so we at least have a president who would be sympathetic to any, anything that comes to his desk. That You can't say that for the previous president. You could say it for Barack Obama. And indeed, you could say it uh, for George W. Bush, who was ready and willing to sign McCain-Kennedy legislation. Um, but it's a very difficult time. American politics is fraught and divided. And comprehensive immigration reform is a very, very big pill to swallow. Mm. Oh, I follow it closely myself and you despair at times. I just see McCain's wife is about to be ditched uh, by the Republicans. And as you said, they couldn't agree on the time of day. Never mind the day you'd feel like that at the moment. Um, look, uh, when you when you mention those other presidents as well, another thing that jumps at me from the book, you know, there was a real fear when Trump was there that people would be just pulled out and deported. But when you look at the figures and you report this in the book, there were far more deported under Obama. Yeah. Well, you, the argument you could make there is that Obama was just more um, efficient and competent at his job. I mean, if, if, if the wishes of the Trump administration all came to fruition, if they actually put in the work uh, to actually carry out what they, want, they said they wanted to carry out, 
it would have been a lot worse than it actually was. <clears throat> and the focus during the Trump years, uh, it wasn't really the Irish that, that they, they were thinking about. It was all on the southern border, the border mm. uh, with Mexico. The diversity visa lottery, which I had mentioned, was in the crosshairs for the Trump administration to kill. But they never actually got around to that. And actually, in the new bill, there's a proposal to raise the number of visas annually from 50,000, um, 55,000 to 180,000. So it survived. So as much as anything else, it was an inefficiency during the Trump years. It wasn't a, a matter of what they wanted to do. Mm. And then a greater inefficiency for good or ill, whether which way you look at it during the Obama years, the, the administration of, of uh, immigration law goes forth pretty much regardless of what the president is thinking or doing, unless he sticks the boot in and says, stop. Mm. Um, so, you know, Obama, yes, uh, he, he, he garnered the, 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 the um, nickname deporter in chief. I don't think it was his particular intention to do that, but the system just ran efficiently during his two terms. Do I take it from our conversation that you don't hold out much hope of a better path for Irish and other nationalities as well to the States? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I o- you always hope um, there is an opportunity. Uh, you know, as I said, I think the whole package may not make it, but individual parts of the package might make it. Now, in the Senate, uh, that will require definitely more than a few Republican backers. Um, uh, you know, I don't hold out much hope for the whole comprehensive immigration reform legislative package right now, but certain parts of it might get through. I don't know. It's very big. Um, certain parts of it might sort of make it. Um, and, you know, we're just going to have to see. It, it's it's sort of there now. In the next few weeks, we should have a better idea where we're going here. Mm. You've done a great job. Just before you go, Kelly Fincham, I see she's mentioned early on in the book. I was in touch with her this morning. She said to say hello to you in the context uh, of that uh, Chuck Schumer 2014 uh, gathering that you feature in the book. But I, she just said to uh, mention her to you today. She's back home, as you know now. Oh, yeah. Well, Kelly, well, hello to Kelly. Kelly was in the trenches yes. with the Irish lobby for immigration reform. I mean, they did extraordinary work. These were people who had lives, and, mm. you know, who, who had other things to do. And they gave up their time and their energy um, over a number of years to try and make things better for the Irish. And, and they deserve extraordinary accolades and thanks. Yes. And you do hand them out to many others in the book. You've done really well. I thoroughly enjoyed it, Ray, I have to say. It's a terrific book and I highly commend it uh, to my listeners today. It's well worth getting. If you enjoy uh, history, if you enjoy the Irish connection with America, if you're somebody over there as well, get this book and read it. It's called Unintended Consequences by Ray O'Hanlon. Great to talk to you today and I wish you well. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Ray O'Hanlon there from the Irish Echo talking to us from New York Live uh, this afternoon. Unintended Consequences. It's a really good one. Stay with us on Late Lunch. I have to say I love this book, Unintended Consequences, and I want to give it to one of you. you love it too, I promise you. If you'd like a copy of Ray's book, uh, I will give it to you if you answer this question. In what year did JFK visit Ireland? In what year did John F. Kennedy visit Ireland? Answers, please, to 086-1800-658 with your name and details. And I'll send that book out to somebody this very day. Jerry, don't get me started. Marquis in Longford and I can't go to Mass, says a listener. 
I'm not, I understand why you're annoyed. I, I, I really do. Uh, we were talking to Joanna O'Dwyer, top of the show from the Red Door. Brilliant lady. I think any discussion, says a listener, about drug abuse has to acknowledge the lack of money invested in mental health services in this country. Drug users invariably have underlying mental health issues. And until a government actually addresses this, we will go round in circles forever. Thank you indeed uh, for that comment. Louise, you're really sad today. I am. I'm just after reading that Nick Kamen died and I think a lot of women will remember Nick Kamen from the um, Levi's ad when he stripped down to his crisp white boxer shorts in, I, a, in a laundrette. I happened to see it. I happened to see the ad uh, last night at the end of a news night. Uh, Emily Maitlis said, it's like yourself, she was shocked to hear oh, this. She's only so in his fifties. Fifty nine. Yeah. And she says there's only one way to finish Newsnight tonight. She played it. And she played the ad. I think I could see her coming out in a flush on the screen, to be <laughs> honest with you, our Emily, as she played it. As he went in. Remind us of it. He went into a laundrette. He went into a laundrette and yeah. there was a load of people waiting and he stripped off his jeans, down to his boxer shorts, yeah. and then put the jeans into the washing machine and then sat down. With a couple of ladies who oh, were picking just their jaws off the apoplectic. Door. They were apoplectic. They were. And I wonder uh, nobody they... noticed what washing powder he used. <laughs> Daz. <laughs> he dazzled yeah, Daz, them anyway. Yeah, he dazzled them. He really did. Uh, he took off his shirt first, and then he t- he unbuttoned the jeans. It was an yeah. ad for the jeans, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Of course, a jeans. He, ad. And he was a pop star then ad, after that. By the way, if you think we're talking about an ad for washing powder, we're no, not. It was, Levi's. Washing, it was for Levi's. Yeah, yeah. It was the Levi's ad. Yeah, absolutely. Every body wore Levi's after that. <laughs> five oh ones. The lovely jeans. Ah, the lovely jeans. You have to say they're they, still as popular five oh ones. Ah, I don't know whether they are. There's so many brands and uh, mm. offshoots of them as well. But they were the one, yeah. And then uh, he had a he had a hit single the following week. Or the ha, following year. Madonna he, sent him Madonna saw him and thought, hmm he looks mm. nice and he set, she sent him a song Each Time You Break My Heart and it was a big hit for him. Good God, our Louise was smitten oh, by... I was only about nine or ten, Mr. but Nick, always she was remember. Smitten. There you are. She's just giving herself a little wave in there. I think there's a little bit red on the cheeks as well. <laughs> just, just <a laughs> oh, God almighty, yes. He brought back memories, memories for sure. He did. Anyway, today on Late Lunch, I want to go back to a little memory of mine. Songs come to me from time to time when I'm just... This old head of mine is sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, and this one came yesterday. I don't know for what reason at all, but I did play it on the show. It must be a couple of years ago now. We had uh, a a young lady in with us on work experience who was hoping to develop a a career in acting. And she said to me, as she was finishing up with us, I said, well, would you like me to play a song for you on the show? And she says, oh, I would. Uh, Could you play Sarah Bareilles? Uh, from the stage show Waitress. Now, Waitress was a movie adapted for the stage then. Didn't know what she was talking about, but it's simply beautiful. Fantastic. Isn't it? Mm. Let's hear it again today from Waitress by Sarah Bareilles. But she used to be mine. Isn't it beautiful? Sarah Bareilles. From the musical Waitress on your late lunch this afternoon. I can't wait to get back to the theatre. If there's something in my life that I love is going to a night at the theatre. No matter where that is or what it is, it's just so, so brilliant. And it's something I've missed immensely this last 14 months or so. But please God, before the end of the year or into early next year, if God spares us, 
it will happen again. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Up next on the show, I'm going to find out all about the New Life Baptist Church. A few weeks ago, I was out cutting the grass one afternoon and uh, as I went to put the grass into one of the bags um, to, before I took it on my compost team, um, a visitor who called to the house hand, handed me this little little flyer here and it says on the front of it, God's simple plan of salvation. Now, the visitor wasn't the person who had this, but it was given to him by a person who was in the area and said, give that to that man there and it'll save him. Well, today I'm going to find out more about it because I'm joined on the line on late lunch by Pastor Philip Tharp from the New Life Baptist Church. Hello, Philip. Hello, Jerry. Thank you so much for having me on today. Not at all. The New Life Baptist Church, tell us a bit about its history. How long is it in existence? What's it all about? Sure, of course. So we actually began as a Bible study group back in the middle of 2015, and we met together for about a year as a a small group just studying the Bible. Um, After a short time, we had enough people uh, attending that we began the process of praying and asking God for wisdom as we established our church. So, um, you know, we start, the name New Life Baptist Church is kind of taken from uh, the Scripture where the Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. So our, our message, Jerry, is really to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with really anyone that we can come across. And I'm so interested to hear how you receive the leaflet. Hmm. And, you know, honestly, that's an answer to our prayers, that, um, <laughs> that this news is getting out to those that... Uh, Maybe need it, and maybe it's a help to someone, you know? Yes, and, and that's true. You handed this to somebody else who handed it to me, and that's why we're all here today. Now, tell me this, 2015 New Life Baptist Church. So you are a church in your own right. Uh, you know, there are so many uh, churches on the Christian spectrum, and you are a new one. Yes, that would be correct. So um, the the Baptist Church actually has been in Ireland for many hundreds of years. Yes. Uh, there are, are, are a whole host of us um that are churches of like faith and practice around the country. Um, so, but my story is very interesting uh, as far as my own family and our, our coming over here to Ireland. Um, we came really as what you might call missionaries. Um, so the goal was to just bring the gospel to those who might need it and might be looking for it here in Ireland. So yes, in that sense, we are a new church for Drogheda, but not a new um, organization, if you will, if you want to put it. Yes. That way. So you come under the umbrella of the Baptist Church. Uh, and, and just back to that story, because I believe it is interesting. You came here in 2014 with your wife and four children. You are now uh, a bigger family than that. There are seven of you, five children now, one born here. What brought you here? You mentioned that you, did, did you look at Ireland specifically or were you sent here by anybody or what? Well, um, it may or may not sound crazy to people, but honestly, Terry, I believe God sent me here. Um, so the simple answer is, you know, we came here as missionaries, but the rest of that is, you know, I, I just said I grew up in the Baptist Church in America, so as long as I can remember, my dad has actually been either the pastor or the assistant pastor of the church where our family attended. So, you know, growing up in church, I'm, I've been around this all my life, uh, but when I was about nine years old, I heard the testimony of another man who shared how he was coming to Ireland to share the gospel here. Now, uh, at the same time, I knew that my family line had strong links to Ireland. I mean, good grief, who in America doesn't have a link to Ireland, mm. right? <laughs> so um, th- that knowledge of both my family history and the power of this man's testimony, I believe, were what God used to impress on my very young heart 
the need for the gospel in Ireland. And that's really uh, what started me on the path. You are vested in, of course, the uh, Christian tradition. You believe in in one God. We are all, of course. I am a sinner. You know, there, uh, show me the person who is not without sin. Right. C- can we, you know, you talk as well. I've been reading a bit about you, you know, salvation. How do we attain salvation? Like, this life is short. We're only here, I understand this, for a very brief time indeed. Where have I come from? I often ask myself that question. Where am I going? Big questions. Yes, indeed. Um, the where have I come from and where am I going, I think, is something that uh, everyone grapples with, that truth. And so, Jerry, our church, one of the distinctives about us is that we hold to the Bible as our only rule for faith and practice. So we don't have any other church higher over us that's telling us what to believe or what not to believe. We just simply look to the simplicity of God's Word. And so my answers for you to that come from the Bible. Um, so how can I go to heaven? How can I know where I'm going? You said very rightly, all have sinned. Uh, I think anybody that it says they haven't sinned probably needs to examine that question a little more carefully. Um, but also, so you know, most folks know of the Apostle Paul. He wrote the book of Romans, and in Romans he said that the wages of sin is death. So what God requires for to pay for sin is death. But now I know that's a bunch of heavy news, and maybe not the greatest news for your listeners today, but... The gospel, the word itself, means good news. And that's really why we're here, to share the, the good news of the gospel that would uh, that the Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So it's not all uh, bad news and damnation. You know, it's, uh, yes, the same God that pronounced judgment, judgment on us for our sins. He's also the same God that offers forgiveness and a full pardon through his own Son, Jesus Christ. You know, he died in our place. So all that's required, to, to answer your question as simply as I can, the Bible teaches that I need to admit the fact that I'm a sinner, I need to repent, which means I need to change my mind and agree with God about what God's Word says about my sin, and that Jesus died on the cross in my place, that He was buried and raised again so we can have salvation, and then simply confess that belief to God. So if, if, I'm, if I may, Jerry, I, I view religion as being really there are only two kinds of religion in the world. Um, there are those that, and I know that seems like probably a gross oversimplification, but hear me out. There are those that teach that someone must do something in order to get to heaven or nirvana or whatever it is they believe. So they've got to do prayers or say confession or communion, etc. And then there is what I would call biblical Christianity. And that is to say that I can't do anything to get to heaven. And the fact is, I must trust and believe that everything for me to get to heaven has already been done for me by Jesus Christ. And that really is the simplest way I could put the message of the Gospel for you to answer that. Mm. So the Bible, it's uh, rooted in the Bible. And, uh, you know, I come from a Catholic Christian background myself, where uh, what you mentioned ago is probably, you know, is the way or is the route to to salvation. But you believe it's vested in the Bible. Um, Do you believe that we will see a return of Christ? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, that's a core teaching of, of really all Christianity, but especially someone who would hold to a, a Bible teaching. And if I may um, further to answer your question about salvation, yes, uh, it's it's deeply rooted in the Bible, but salvation is not uh, in the Bible per se. We learn of it in the Bible, yeah. and we would believe that salvation, very much like uh, many other Christian religions, they would teach that salvation is in Jesus Christ. One of the main differences, though, that I would say doctrinally between uh, the Baptist Church and many other uh, 
Christian uh, religious organizations, I would say is that the Bible teaches that salvation is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. So it's not attached to what all I'm doing in the Church. It's, you know, it it is, have I trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior? Mm. So we can't influence where we're headed or where we'd be. Do you believe in a heaven or hell? Oh, absolutely. Yes, I do. And that's one of the main reasons why I'm here, Jerry. Um, Because the book of Romans, again, Paul wrote that. He wrote in that, uh, in Romans chapter 15, he said, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now, the news of hell is not particularly comforting at all. But what is hell without, uh, you know, an an anti-type, right? What is hell without heaven? What is hope without something to compare it to? See, for for many people, organized religion is very distant and otherworldly, but for us, biblical Christianity is all about having a relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, you know, that fact that I can personally know the God who created me, and I can relate to Him, and and He can relate with me, and all that gives me hope for not only for this life, but also for the next. So, Mm. yes, absolutely, I believe in the realities of heaven and hell, uh, but that message of hope that we don't have to go to hell, that there's a way for us to go to heaven, is really, that's the main reason why I'm here. And that's through the Bible, you say. That is the way. It's not through uh, good deeds here on this earth, being a good church goer, being a good neighbour, decent person. No. Absolutely. Yeah, you've summed up the message uh, very care- uh, very clearly for me. Um, th- in fact, the book of Romans, again, uh, much of uh, the doctrines in the Bible are found uh, in the book of Romans, um, it teaches us that there are none that do good, no, not one. Uh, so those things that we do, they may appear good on the outside, mm. but what we're dealing with is the answer to the root problem. My heart broke, Terry, as I was listening to Joanne earlier in your show talk about the the, the drug usage among young people, and I, I pray for the Red Door Project and pray for these these situations, you know, that people can be pointed to some help and to some hope. But I I firmly believe that the situation that we're seeing with the swift rise in drug use among young people here in Ireland um, is in part a direct result of the utter failure of organized religion, and and it will always fail. Um, Karl Marx, I'm no fan of Karl Marx, but he said that religion, uh, part of his quote was that it's the opium of the people. Yeah. So what I mean is exactly what Marx recognized, and that, that is the fact that organized religion, really, it's just another thing that people use to fill the hole in, in themselves, people that are hurting, and they need some sense of fulfillment or purpose. And I listened to Joanne's story about, uh, and I read a little bit about her life, about the heartache that she went through. Mm. And, you know, my grandfather was a pastor. My father is also a pastor in America. And I've heard both of these men say very wisely many times, they've said, Every single person is born with a hole in them that only God can fill. So, And it won't ever be truly filled using any other replacement, not drugs, not sex, not success, not fame, not money. So, uh, again, that's a big part of why we're here in Ireland, to point people around us to where they can find real hope. And that really is what the message of the Gospel is about. Do you say the Baptist family are different then? You know, you talk about organized religion. Is, are Baptists not organized? Uh, there are some sects of uh, the Baptist Church that are organized, like there would be the Baptist Union found here in Ireland. Um, we would call ourselves an independent Baptist Church, so that really just means that 
uh, we've been organized, uh, we organized ourselves based on the authority of God's Word, and uh, so like I said, we don't have any kind of hierarchy over us. Mm. Uh, we try to work together as independent Baptists um, and encourage each other and support one another's ministries, but there is no kind of echelon of authority, if you will. Yes. So you're not saying not to be good in this life, a decent person, be a good, you know, rear a good family. If you have, a, if you're blessed with that, to have a family, yes. to, you know, to earn your living, not to harm your neighbor. You're not saying not do those things. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, Again, that's one of the core teachings of Christianity. Yes, that we should we should support our government as much as possible. That we should respect the authorities that lead us, and uh, you know that we should be good citizens and love our neighbor. Uh, that's one of the core teachings of biblical Christianity. Mm. Is that uh, mm. Jesus Himself said uh, that men will know you're my followers by the way you love one another. Um, so yeah, th- those are extremely important. But they are loving someone is not the key to getting to heaven. Yeah. If you understand. Look, you're very interesting. I do have to leave it there today. I'll be back to you for sure. If people want to find out more about you, where do they go? Absolutely. Check us out online. Uh, you can find us through our website, newlifebaptist.ie, or you can find our location, our service times and all that, and live streaming of the services uh, by searching for New Life Baptist Church in Drahada on Facebook. You're interesting, very interesting, uh, and I wish you well. Pastor Philip Tharp, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me on, Jerry. Let me go home. Michael Bublé and home on your late lunch this afternoon. We all love home. I love home. I love my home. I'm sure most people do. And when you think of those immigrants we were talking about earlier on, how they miss home as well. And mind you, we wouldn't mind giving it a break for a while after the last 14 months and getting away somewhere when you think about it. Um, My old friend Peter is back. Jerry, you're on there giving out about people enjoying a family wedding in Longford. What's wrong with living a normal life? Uh, once you have got over the reality that Neffet and the state are telling you, Porkies, I didn't hear you mentioning that the great states of Florida and Texas are open for business. A friend of mine was at a wedding in Florida at the weekend, over 200, not a face mask in sight. Well, Peter, you mustn't really take stock of things. Do you look at the millions of vaccinations that have gone out in the states? Millions upon millions, first, second doses, and Biden has done a wonderful job over there. Vaccinations. Have you looked at the numbers in uh, uh, in the um, emergency units here in Ireland? And intensive care, the way those numbers have dropped off, the cases are dropping as well. Why, Peter? Why? Vaccination! Vaccination is the word, my dear friend. That's the answer. That's the way out of this thing, Mr. Peter. Will you please cop yourself on and stop sending me in this nonsense? (laughs) Anyway, thanks, Peter, for your message to the show today. The book, the book, the book, the uh, book about uh, immigration. Ray O'Hanlon, brilliant. Unintended consequences. Going to Anthony Farrell in Kells this afternoon. 1963, June, JFK was in Ireland. Thanks to everybody who sent us in that date. Still to come on the show Petula Clark, another song and more about our life story and then we're heading to Carlingford. There's real worry there over the abandoned village. Stay with us on Late Lunch. Oh, will the Gunners do it tonight? I can see the headlines in the papers tomorrow. Gunner Gunners, they let the side down. There's three English sides through uh, City and Chelsea in the Champions League and Man United through to the Europa final. But I could see Arsenal doing you-know-what on the eggs tonight. But let's hope. We live in hope when you're a Gunner all these years. You certainly do. Wish them well, anyway, uh, this evening. Good to hear as well there on sport, uh, the uh, Olympians, our Irish Olympians, 
getting the vaccination and the support crews as well. How could you send them out to to, uh, the Olympics in Japan without being vaccinated? That's a no-brainer, isn't it? Good to hear that Pfizer-BioNTech have rolled in to make sure that will happen, besides all the other supplies of vaccines that are coming our way. And next week, yes, the uh, single-shot Johnson & Johnson jabs to be rolled out here in Ireland. It's really ramping up at this stage. Oh, I can see it. July, August is looking good. We'll be back, please God. Late Lunch LMFM Radio. I uh, talk about my Artist of the Week at this time every day on the show. And this week, it's Petula Clark. And Petula continued to chart during the early to mid-70s. She toured extensively and was absolutely everywhere on TV and both sides of the Atlantic. She did scale back her work, however, in the late 70s to devote more time to her family. But as the 80s rolled in, she returned to the love of her life stage and she starred as Maria von Trapp in The Sound of Music on London's West End where she was bestowed with the accolade of the best Maria ever. Roles followed in Candida, Someone Like You, Blood Brothers, oh what a play that is, and Sunset Boulevard which she took to Broadway and on tour around the States to tremendous acclaim. Yet her music resonated with a remix of Downtown in 1988 making it to the top 10 in the UK charts, her first hit since the early 70s. Today's song made number one in the UK on the 16th of February 1967 with sales almost instantly exceeding half a million copies. But ironically, Petula herself never really was fond of this song. And here's one for you. This song was written in 1966 by the one and only Charlie Chaplin. Why is my heart so light? What an arrangement there. Fine orchestra behind her. This is my song written by Charlie Chaplin and a big hit for Petula Clark. And Eddie was telling me, Eddie Caffrey, that uh, at the same time, Harry Seacombe had a version out. Uh, but Petula's did best of all. But funny enough, she wasn't that fond of the song herself. And Charlie had written it for something else. But then it came Petula's way and she recorded it. Final instalment of the Petula Clark story here on Late Lunch tomorrow. And I'll pick another one of our greats for you to enjoy. A final break of the afternoon on the way. And we're heading to Carlingford then. Because Claude McKevitt is very concerned about the event. The Abandoned village. Stay with us. Cloda McKevitt's on the line from Carlingford this afternoon. Hello, Cloda. Hello, Jerry. How are you? I'm good. God, you didn't hold back in that old social media post about oh, the, the deserted stop. village. Huh? <laughs> What's the deserted village? Tell listeners what it is. Um, it's an absolutely beautiful little spot in Carlingford at the base of Barnavave, if you know part of the Cooley Mountains yep. there, Maeve Gap. And it's a village that's been standing there for a couple of centuries anyway, if not more. The wooden bits were probably there a lot longer and there's also a megalithic sweat house and there's a passage tomb, an old megalithic tomb as well. Old, that's in the title really, isn't it, megalithic? Mm. But um, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous spot. And it's, like, uh, people call it the famine village and that's kind of a misnomer because it, there was people living in it um, long after the famine. So, um, but it's a gorgeous spot, Jerry. And if you've ever been to it, you'll know that yourself. Um, and I suppose what's happened is during lockdown, 
you know, people are exploring more around their own territory and it's become a place that people are going to more frequently and that's kind of cost it quite a lot. Um, it's not out of malice now. I just want to get that across very, yeah. very quickly. It's not vandals. It's not people being uh, purposely damaging it. it. It's just constant erosion of people walking on the walls, climbing up to get better pictures, kids being allowed to climb on it. She's old, you know, she's like myself. She can't be dealing with all that abuse. <laughs> I mean, I'm in your club too, Claude, I have to say. I'm along with you there. But I understand what you're saying. This has been there from time immemorial. People have lived there. Some of the structures survive and survive well, we have to say, in the yes. walls, etc. But we're, you just want to say to people today, take care of this little beauty yeah, spot. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I understand. Uh, see, a lot of times it's just the people maybe aren't aware. But like, if you could look at it in a slightly different way, instead of looking at it as a pile of old stones or old walls, and think about the fact that for hundreds of years, the reason those walls are there was people lifted every one of those rocks from mm. that ground to clear land that they could raise animals on. And it was in a time when they didn't have much. So they worked from morning till night to clear those and build those houses. You can still see the remnants of the lazy beds. Um, are you aware of lazy beds? They were the way they used to plant yes. back in the day. Yes. And one of the bottom fields, you can see the lovely curves of the drills mm. still underneath. Mm. And it's, it's one of those places that we are lucky to still have the way progress went over you know, the last 30 years when they were bulldozing through anything that sat still for a minute. So to be able to keep it and preserve it would be fantastic for generations. To yes. Come. And I do think we just need to start putting a little bit more care and thought into these places that we have that we might see as old or useless but because it's not. It's apt. I think a lot of people learned that over the lockdown, how beautiful the area that we live in and how gorgeous our country is because in fairness, we've nothing else to do, only walk it, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, look, I'm um, with you all the way on this and I, I, I join in your appeal as well to people to enjoy it but to mind it and be careful because these stones, it's easy to knock a wall and when it's down, putting yeah. it back up, it's not straightforward. It's not and... You know, with some of like the, the megalithic sweaters, because a lot of it, because it's attached to the houses there in the village, people thought it was maybe just like some people were calling it the dog kennel or whatever. But that's a megalithic sweater. That's there anywhere from 3,000 to 5,000 years. That's, that's how long that's standing. And just the history of it, like it's a megalithic sauna. So people used to light the turf in there, light the wood in there, get the stones all nice and hot, scrape it out get butt naked, excuse the excuse the term for this hour of the day, and then pop in and they would get all the, the, the sweat off their bodies because they used to hunt naked back then. So they were getting rid of the scent initially. Yes. And then they realised the health benefits. So 3,000 years ago, people were in there. They built that. Mm. <laughs> so, And I think if you can kind of get that into your head, how valuable that structure is and in such a beautiful spot. I mean, we are blessed with where we live. Yes. I mean, Ireland is a fantastically beautiful country. So yeah. I do think we just need to put a little bit more care. It's As I said again, it's not, it wasn't vandalism. Yeah. It's just a lack of awareness. Yeah, it's a lack of awareness, not knowing, yeah. not appreciating. So if you know it as the famine village or the deserted village in Carlingford... Please do mind it. Take care and don't, don't uh, please, you know, knock walls or stones or do things like that. It's best not to and leave things as they are. Now, you're passionate, I know, about the area and you are renowned with uh, your business there, Anim Tours, as a wonderful guide. When people go, I've seen the reviews. They love 
you when you, you. Oh, you know, you're great, and I know this, and people have really appreciated your knowledge and your. I can get your enthusiasm as I talk to you today for the place and what you do. Just uh, before we finish up, in the last uh, year, it's it's been tough, hasn't it? It really has. Oh yes, absolutely uh, horrendous. Uh, yeah, it's. It wasn't a great time to be starting a business just before 2020. I know. But it was very hard, very hard for a lot of people. There's a lot of small businesses really, really struggled. And to be honest, I'd say that it was very hard. But the one thing that came out of it, and I just want to get this across, is the community support for the local businesses has been amazing. And just even... Because they knew we were struggling. And yes, there was a disparity of rules. Some of the bigger companies managed to, to keep going and stuff. And that was causing a little bit of anger. But the local support for local businesses has been amazing. We are a great nation of wonderful people who look after each other. And there's an awful lot of negativity put out there and people focusing on all the, the, the little bad points. But there are way more positive points to be to be celebrated. And I think that's what has to we have to hold on to that after this horrible year and say, look at the people who supported us and look at what, what was important. Yeah. Let's and not look at the bad stuff. You know, there's been yes. too much of that. Well said, <laughs> and you can get bogged down in that. And of course, there are things that annoy us historically in the present and will do in the yes. future. But you're so right. I, I'm sure you're looking forward uh, to getting going again because we will be back. The news is good. The vaccinations yes. are getting out there. The travel will be opened up by the time we come round into June, July, August. I, I expect Carlingford will be buzzing. Oh, I'd say as well, yes. And I mean, I was allowed to have my juniors back. I have junior hikers that they come every week. And that I, my, my voice is a little bit gone from the excitement of that the last two days. <laughs> and then the adults are back then next week. So I can't wait to be just talking the ears off people. <laughs> <laughs> because my dog is sick listening to me at this stage. <laughs> but seriously, Claude, I say this to anybody and I, I've availed of it at home and abroad. I don't think people understand that you can visit an area and do your own thing and walk around. There's lots of little guides you can pick up and things yes. like that. But the listeners, I say to you today, when you go anywhere, pay the money for a guide because... It brings a total new perspective, Clodagh, on yes, where you are. Yes. Yeah, it does. And I do it myself when I go yeah. anywhere because I love to find the little nooks and crannies that aren't. I've had, God, some of my friends came on the tour to support, to support me at the start when I opened up. They're from Carrie, but they've lived here all their life. And I actually took the road places and I showed them stuff and they went, didn't even know that. <laughs> there you go. You know, we kind of become blind to what's in our own yes. area. We we become desensitised to it and stuff. So it's lovely when you go to an area and a local person takes you around and they show you all the wee bits that you know aren't on the main trails. And yes. I love that. And I I do I do support other places when I go as well. Mm. And like we have fantastic facilities here in Carlingford, and we are blessed. Yeah, and it's with the, with the heritage centre, with yeah. the castle, and all the bike hires and the restaurants and the bars and everything, and all the stuff you can do in the water. Oh, oh listen, no. listen! It's the Amalfi <laughs> Coast in North Loud, folks. I can I just tell you know. that it really is. Anyway, Anim <laughs> Tours, <laughs> Anim Tours, check her out. A N A M, Anim Tours. Claude McEvitt, she look after you and do mind what we've been talking about there, the abandoned village in Carlingford. Wish you well. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much.
so much, Sherry. Thank Not you. at all. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's lovely. Clodagh McKevitt there joining me from beautiful Carlingford this afternoon. Anyway, that's a lot on this Thursday's late lunch. Tomorrow, Friday, we round off the week. Ruby O'Kelly, she's an emerging star. She has a new song. We're going to hear it tomorrow and chat to her on the show. And Griffin is back. Remember her book, When All Is Said in 2019, Book of the Year newcomer in the Irish Awards. She swept the boards with accolades. She's back with our new one, the follow-up called Listening Still. She's with me tomorrow. Leon Blanche looks ahead to the weekend in sport and absent-mindedness. I'm suffering from it more and more as the years go by. So is our Louise. We're going to tell you our stories tomorrow and we're going to be joined by Dr Sabina Brennan who's going to help us all out with the problem with absent-mindedness. Have you had an absent-minded moment? We want to hear from you tomorrow on the show. Eddie Caffrey's coming next with The Drive. Have a lovely Thursday evening and come back tomorrow for the final Late Lunch of the Week from 1.30. See you then. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drahada Dundalk and Cavan. Attention all van drivers. We have the biggest range of light commercials in the northeast. Our van specialist, Danny at Blackstone Motors, will find a commercial vehicle to suit your requirements. We offer same-day business finance. Call Danny or visit blackstonemotors.ie for more information. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.